Hey, this is John Fanta from Fox College Hoops and Big E Shootaround. You're listening to the best podcast on the Seton Hall Pirates, Left Coast Pirates. Horton will try to go all the way. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is March 14th, 2021, and Mikey, every time I think I'm out, they Pull me back in. After this last month of basketball, Mike, I was assuming I was going to turn on that first round game against St. John's and just sit back and watch and, you know, whatever. But it got me invested again, Mike. And it made the Georgetown game all that much harder. All right, Tommy. Good morning to you, too. All right. But before we get into recapping this week, I got a few things I got to get off my chest and it goes back to why we didn't do a big East tournament preview this year. I, I kind of felt like we were emotionally and mentally drained after that four game losing streak. W- weren't you? Oh man, I was done. Everything was over. They hadn't played a good game since the Yukon game back in early February. It was over done. And on top of that, did, did we really need to hear another podcast out there giving prognosis that UConn is now the team to beat? Xavier's got a chance to play their way back onto the bubble. And of course, of course, St. John's is now the dark horse that everyone's picking to win it all now that Gillespie and Moore got hurt for Nova. Well, well guess what? Guess what? They're all wrong, dummy. They were all wrong. <laughs> Mike, that sounds like shots fired. I don't know. But that's why I love the Big East tournament at MSG. It's it's special. There is a different level of energy. And I, I know it wasn't the same this year without, you know, the, the sold out crowds, but you still felt like there was a buzz even with the fans that were in the building. And sometimes it can be magical. And this is also why I love championship week. For every team in the country, the score resets back to zero. And there is this hope that for three or four days in a row, you can erase all the ills of the past year and still make it to the NCAA tournament. It's always much more of a monumental task to do that in the Big East tournament, obviously. But I am one of those suckers who dreams it could be us every year. Now, I, now I know it wasn't meant to be for Seton Hall, but isn't this what sports is all about? Earlier this year, the game lost a legend in John Thompson II, a larger-than-life representation of what is great about the Big East and college basketball. This year, coaches across the nation paid tribute to him by duplicating his iconic look of the tower over his shoulder while roaming the sidelines. And then, enter stage left, the most recognizable player from his former teams, Patrick Ewing, leading a young upstart Hoya squad into the garden with a mission to accomplish. And then four days later, the auto bid and the Big East tournament trophy fittingly belongs to Georgetown in what has been such a crazy year of college basketball. Tom, sometimes I wonder if if the basketball gods reach down and sometimes provide that little bit of divine intervention. Well, Mike, we got the story right. We just got the participants wrong. Isn't this what we said Seton Hall was lined up to do? This side of the bracket had a wounded Nova. Now, if we could just get by the Johnnies the first game, take on that Nova team, all of a sudden we'd be in the finals and anything can go. Well, it wasn't us, but it was that well-recognized Patrick Ewing leading his Hoyas. Well, well-recognized to everybody except the Madison Square Garden security crew. But but that's my point. We're, we're looking at it from blue-tinted glasses already. Outside of the Seton Hall community, 
how is it not the perfect story for Georgetown to play it out the way that it did? If if Seton Hall makes that run, no one's sitting there going, what a magical story for Seton Hall. Come on, stop, stop it. talking about the Hoyas. This is Left Coast Pirates. Come on, Mike. You know, and there was good things that happened this week. So this week on the podcast, we will review... The new try, Big East Player of the Year, Sandro Mamukelishvili's year. We're going to review the win against the St. John's Red Storm. We're going to talk about the loss to the Georgetown Hoyas. And finally, we're going to look at pandemic pandemonium and see what could happen this year with the teams dropping out left and right. But first... Mamu wins the Big East Player of the Year, Mikey. Your boy. I should be excited, right? I should be off the. I should be. This is the culmination of what I was talking about for the last three years, while you were kind of putting him down. Go, go uh, ahead. No, no, you. Ah, yes. Stop wait a minute. No. Nope. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna... sorry, Mike. I wasn't gonna be excited about his and one mixtape that starts off with him at the foul line, Mike. Okay, that wasn't a good start to say. Mamu was going to win the biggest player of the year. Come on, Tom. When we were making all these predictions, no one would have predicted that he would have been one of 10 guys in Seton Hall program history to finish on the first team and then be player of the year. Only 10 guys ever on the first team. The numbers are solid. We, we can debate it, but he, he definitely deserved to be on this first team. We can talk about whether he deserved to be Kobe's player of the year, but 17.6 points per game, second in the conference. 7.4 rebounds, six in the conference, averaged almost three and a half assists a game, which was top 15. And I, I, I can't believe you put this stat in there, Tommy. And he led the league in turnovers with 3.6 a game. Hey, man, I, you added that into the, the notes. Numbers speak for themselves. And, and don't diminish the assist numbers by saying it's just top 15. He is the top big man in those assist categories. Everybody ahead of him are point guards or shooting guards. So th this is big for a big man. I think when you sit there and look at the biggies player of the year or try player of the year, I think we also kind of have this built in expectation that it's almost kind of like a most valuable player, even though that's not what the award stands for. We don't know what the definition of the award truly means. It's, it's up for debate, but you assume that it goes to the best player on the best team and Seton Hall kind of did slide down the stretch. They finished tied for fourth, ultimately in fifth, you know, they're not going to make the NCAA tournament now. I think in some people's eyes, maybe Sandro doesn't belong in that upper echelon player of the year category, but g give me your take. Who, who else would it have been then? It was a fitting end to this year. I mean, it was a strange year to begin with, and that's what we got in our Try Biggies Player of the Year. That's a strange way to end it. So if you think about it, Mike, I, I've got some, I got some really weird kind of opinions on this. If two guys on the same team are considered player of the year, is either one of them really? I mean, I know everybody loves themselves some Colin Gillespie, but this is definitively a lifetime achievement award for the kid more than anything else. 14 points a game, 3.3 rebounds, 4.9 assists. Nice. Not thrilling. You look at Jeremiah Robinson Earl, 14, 8, and 1.7. Again, nice. Not thrilling. Is it because they have to share that ball, share the leadership on that team? That's not my problem. Neither one of those guys jump out as being the best player in the league. Maybe you got to think outside the box a little bit here. Julian Champagny had himself a season in conference, first in scoring of the guys who qualified. James Booknight only played nine conference games and he had a better points per game average, but he didn't qualify for that scoring title. Fifth in rebounds, top 10 in block shots. And Mikey, his shooting really jumped off the page for me. He's got a 42, 40, and 87 split on those shooting numbers. That's really good. And I know they love giving the award to guys off of winning teams. St. John's finished ahead of us, maybe just by tiebreaker, but they did. I, th I think there's a lot of politics that go into this. Remember, only the coaches vote on this. So this is not like a, a large panel of writers where they don't go into a room and deliberate and come back out and say, all right, this is our final decision. And they give you the rationalization. All the coaches get a vote. They can't vote for their own guys. And whatever the vote is, 
that's it. We're done. We move on. The, the first two guys for Nova, you're having a problem with it because once again, you're, you're treating it like it's the, you know, MVP. So I can't give it to the two guys on the same team because I don't have an MVP. If there's two guys on the same team, they're both just as important. That's not the point. In one coach's eye, they thought Gillespie was the best player in the league. And for somebody else, they thought it was Jeremiah Robinson Earl. I have no issue with you putting champagne out there. But this goes back to the politics. Those three guys are all probably gone next year. Gillespie might come back, depending on what his pro-European prospects might look like. And the injury that he just kind of you know suffered might hold him back from making that jump to the pros right away. So maybe he comes back for another year. But Sandro's gone. Jeremiah Robinson Earl's gone. So you take a guy like Champagny, you give him the most improved player of the year award, or he even has to share that one. And then you prop him up to come back on an upstart St. John's team as the player of the year candidate going into next year. It's, 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 it's political. I'm sorry. It is. It's, it's, it's building up narratives that don't need to be built up. There is no problem with him being both most improved and player of the year. But you know, I can't argue with Sandro winning the thing either. I would have liked him not to turn the ball over as much, but you know, his, his season was good. He was the most important pirate on the floor. So I can't argue that that much. The final voting tallies just seemed strange. We said it last year with Miles Powell because we thought his numbers might have been down relative to guys like Marcus Howard or how well a guy like Tyshawn Alexander played last year. And maybe that some of the coaches were like, hey, Miles did it, you know, in spite of some other issues. Did Sandro get some votes in spite of what was surrounding him on the team? Like, was he put in a position where he was asked to do too much and the other coaches realized that? Here's a guy, 6'11", asked to play point forward when that's he, he really shouldn't have been playing that role on the team? I don't know. Potentially, I don't know. I, I, think that's, I think that's BS to a certain extent. We were at one point in third place in the Big East, trending in the right direction, and then it all fell apart. So do you look at it and say, well... If he's the best player in the league, how come we fell apart down the stretch? You know, I mean, there's there's all these questions. But in general, great honor, deserved, probably deserved it more than uh, Gillespie and Jeremiah Robinson Earl did. But good job. And as he was chosen the best player, Mikey, he certainly showed it in the first game in the Big East Tournament because Seton Hall 77, St. John 69. The Hall had control of the game early on, building a 31-22 lead with five and a half to go in the first half. But the Johnnies went on a 10-2 run to bring the lead back down to one at the break. The game would go back and forth after that with Miles Kale making a driving layup with 54 seconds and regulations left to tie the game at 62. In the OT, the Pirates stayed aggressive and scored nine points from the line, pulling away for an eight-point victory. All right, Tommy, box score on this one. As you mentioned, Sandro steps up, kind of fills the box score like he's done throughout the year. 20 points, seven rebounds, four assists. But to me, the player of the game, Jared Roden, 19 points. Six of those points coming in overtime from the line and a career-high 16 rebounds. Miles Kill. 16 points, eight boards as well. And Ike Obiagu, seven points, five boards, and seven blocks to make his presence felt in the middle. For St. John's, Champagny, 19 points, six boards, but it was on seven of 21 from the floor. Rasheem Dunn chipped in with 15, and Williams and Erlington had 12 each as well. The team stats on this one, free throws. Seton Hall got back to what they do well. 31 attempts at the line. They made 23. St. John's got there 20 times as well. You know, it was a good old Big East rock fight in terms of grinding it out at the garden. Seton Hall did their thing with 10 blocks to St. John's one. And St. John's did their thing with eight steals to R4. But let's not sugarcoat it. Seton Hall's defense definitely stepped up and St. John's could not hit the broad side of a barn. 33% from the floor for St. John's and 24% from them from three on six of 25 from distance. Tom, the turning point to me was the hustle plays in overtime. We had been lamenting about the uh, Seton Hall not getting to 50-50 balls over the course of the, the meltdown to end the regular season. In OT, with Seton Hall up by two, Roden gets an offensive board that leads to two free throws, and they extend the lead to four, making it a two-possession game. And on the next trip down, Sandro closes out 
and blocks an Erlington three-point attempt. And then on the next possession, Kale extends it with a little jump shot to six. But those are two hustle plays that were not being made in the prior losses. Clearly what I thought turned the game there in overtime. Well, Mike, I think the biggest story about this game was the quote-unquote big three surely stepped up. I mean, Sandro, Roden, and Kale just looked like they weren't going to go home. They weren't ready for it. They combined to score 55 points. And this was the first time all three scored in double figures in the same game since scoring 53 against DePaul. It's an obvious recipe for success. You mentioned that that's the first time the big three stepped up since that DePaul victory. That was the last time that they won <laughs> prior to this game, right? So, I mean, it, and then I go back and say, okay, when was the last time that happened again before that? They had 53 at UConn, right? So, I mean, when they play well, the big three step up on the season. They were eight and four when the three of them scored in double figures. And in three of those losses, Tom, they were close games. So let me, let me rewind. You have the Providence OT game, which we felt like they gave away, right? You have the game at Nova where they had the bad end game decisions. And then you have the meltdown against Creighton. In all three of those games, we felt like those should have been wins. And we, for other reasons, you know, we, we let the opportunity slip away. But that means if you kind of flip those three games, they're really like 11 and one when those three guys score in double figures. We knew that was going to be the recipe and it just didn't happen consistently throughout the year. That's 50% of the games that that's going to happen when you play your best basketball. They were, they were 500. You know, moving on from that, Mike, I heard an interesting stat. I don't know if you know this or not, but we are the third biggest team in the country, Mike. And you know what happened? We played like it because Ike was playing like a monster in there. He had seven blocks, Mike. And in addition to that, shots were changing because of him. A little more arc on the shot. He played like we thought he was going to play from last year. He has that ability, right? He has that potential to do what Roe did last year and change games. There have been some nights where he is mentally in the other team's head based on those initial couple blocks that he sets the stage with. And then it just has his ripple effect where he has a monster night where, you know, he blocks nine, eight, seven, like he did in this game. But but here's an interesting stat. I mean, this supposed to be blue-tinted glasses, and I'm giving controversial stats here. Ike finishes the season with 77 blocks. That is the fifth highest total for a single season in program history. But he recorded 37 of them in only six games. When he is on, man, he is on. And in other games, you know, he, he has to try to find his footing. But man, did Ike put his fingerprints all over this game and the Johnnies were not the same team that took the floor in Queens a few days prior. I mean, it, it just, it was a night and day performance and you know, it was, it was, it goes to the grit that the team brought to the table that night. And when Ike is manning the middle, they're a different team because there are times where our perimeter D breaks down. And when Ike can kind of erase those mistakes, yeah, we're not that bad of a team. They're not. And they showed it that night. You know, one of the things that we were lamenting that we weren't getting during the losing streak or during that time where we were playing poorly was also production off the bench. Not Maybe not even production, but good play. And you know who played in his first Big East tournament game really well? Jahari Long. He played 15 quality minutes, including 10 in the second half. He had no turnovers against that hard-nosed St. John's defense, and he played steady defense. And, you know, I always keep saying to you, Mike, he just needs that one little positive at the beginning of the game to give him some confidence. And he went to the basket and had an and one. That was a pretty play. I liked what I saw from Jahari. I, I like the fact that the bench just showed some life and Jahari was a part of that. Everyone keeps on saying, oh, we got an eight-man rotation. No, no, Jahari was not a part of the rotation. This night, he was a part of the rotation. Shavar was not having a good game, and Willer was able to kind of pull Shavar from the game, insert Jahari, and Jahari gave you quality effort. He definitely gave you a solid performance. But but can we back just a little bit, back up just a little bit. In the postgame, Willard says, you know, Jahari won us the game. 
when he's talking to the guys in the studio. Isn't that a little much? You know, we we bash on Kevin's thoughts here and there, but, you know, this is a matter of a coach trying to get a confidence in his young kid built up. I don't have a problem with it. Give him the praise. Is is it over the top? Sure, it's over the top. Your big three really were the difference makers. But look at it this way. Shavar turned the ball over, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, over and over, and he was not playing a good game. Where do you go with it? Where are you going with your point guard situation, especially against that St. John's defense? Those guys are pit bulls on that side. You needed someone to come out there, get that ball down court, and get the offense moving. So I, I think he had to did a good job. Man, he was a big part of that win. I, I think he deserved the praise. That's not where I'm going with this. I just think it's an overreaction by some of the fan base after that game, after Willie puts the praise out there, that they're, everyone's like, oh, based on that performance, he can blossom next year and, and you know, become a great point guard. Or this is what we so, thought we had in Johari. He scored one basket. I, I understand he handled the pressure. I understand he didn't turn it over. But, I mean, slow down. You didn't, like, take over the game. You got a freshman for Georgetown winning, you know, player of the tournament, winning them, you know, leading them to the, the to the title. We, we get one basket, and all of a sudden we're, we're giving him the keys to the ship or, hey, all is forgiven because he didn't play this year? Come on, stop it. You know, let the kid have his moment. In comparison to what we've seen previously, this was a huge upgrade. Stop being so sour. We're all right. Since you're going that direction, Mike, let's go to sour grapes and gripes here. What do you got? What what what's pissing you off more than just coach giving a kid credit? <laughs> you, you weren't upset that once again we had all this momentum going into the end of the first half. We played almost like a, a perfect 16 minutes, and then all of a sudden St. John's goes on a 10-0 run. And then we we still we still a bucket right before the half to take a one point lead into halftime. Uh, how many? Uh, there's no more games to be played this year, in my opinion. But how many more times are you going to come out, you know, give a good effort and then give it right back because you can't play the last four minutes the way you played the first sixteen? What's the, up with that? The ghosts of collapsed pasts was definitely floating around in my brain, Mike. We've done that over and over. I mean, hell. The previous St. John's game, the previous UConn game, we had nice little leads and all of a sudden, boom, runs just took it away from us. I get it. Yeah, it's not a good way. It's not a good look. Absolutely. But, you know, bigger than that, and Shavar had a rough game out there, man. And, you know, uh, we could could go over the numbers and I think, and we're going to go over the numbers in the Georgetown game. He had five turnovers for the game. Amazingly, four of them were in the first half. So second half and then OT, he actually took care of the ball a little better, which this led to Willard having to play Jahari Long for bigger stretches during the game. There was a slightly reported head injury that knocked Bryce Aiken out of these games. And and I think what happened was, I think Shavar took it upon himself and said, I've got to step up. We don't know what we're going to get out of Jahari. Obviously, Bryce isn't playing, and I think Shavar tried too much. This is the same narrative we've had over and over and over again. We just haven't used Shavar to his best of his abilities this year. Yeah, but we've had Shavar in this situation before. This is not the first time that we went into a game knowing that Aiken can't take the court. So, right, I mean, but, the, I... but the level of importance of this game is higher than some midseason game against Xavier or somebody. But his turnovers looked like he was out of sorts beyond just, you know, making a bad pass or so. I mean, it was just collectively poor basketball IQ, getting into the positions where you shouldn't be, throwing passes while leaving his feet. I mean, Willard had to pull him. I mean, you could see the body language for the other guys on the court kind of being like, really? That was the turnover you just committed? It, it, Willard had to make the substitutions that he made, and I'm kind of surprised as we get into the – Georgetown gave him later on. He didn't follow the same MO with the quality of play that you got from Jahari along this game. Look, I was just happy that Willard was willing to give him the hook and get somebody else in there to try to change the momentum of what those plays were doing. It, it could have gotten away from us and Jahari did a nice job. I want to go back to, let, let's not beg on Shavar. Let's go back and say, good job, Jahari. How about that? Absolutely. So we beat St. John's. We had that first step in that magic run that we were talking about. Georgetown happened to take care of business against a depleted Nova team. The cards were lining up, Mike. We were ready. And Georgetown 66 
Seton Hall 58. The sluggish offensive starts returned in the first half of this one as the Pirates trailed 33 to 23, 16 minutes into the game. But an 11 to 3 Hall burst cut the deficit to two before the half. Out of the half, the ball was getting squeezed a little harder with 10 total turnovers in the first five minutes combined. Maybe the guys were getting tired and their legs were getting heavy as the pace of play slowed down and it became a rock fight to the finish. The biggest lead was five points until the final moments before Georgetown hit six free throws to ice the game. All right, Tommy, stats on this one. Jared Roden really kind of felt like he was the only pirate to show up and fill the box score. Game high, 22 points, 9 of 18 from the floor, and he also threw in five rebounds. Sandro's stat line, it looks okay. Eight points, 10 boards, five assists, but in a big moment, he only shot three of 16 on the night. For Georgetown, you had Jamarco Pickett, 19.6 boards, and Dante Harris, dare I say it again, Another freshman bites us in the you-know-what, 15 points on five or six shooting, and big play after big play down the stretch. For the team stats, Seton Hall couldn't shoot straight in this one. 39% from the floor, 29% from three-point range, 5 of 18, and 46% on their free throws, 5 of 11. It felt like everyone that they missed was just a kind of knife in your back when they needed it most. The assists, Georgetown wanted to give us this game. We had 10 assists and we lost to a team that had five the entire game. On the rebounding side of things, you know, Georgetown's strength is to hit the glass, yet we out-rebounded them on the offensive side, 14 to six. This game was ripe for a Seton Hall victory and Georgetown found a way to pull it out. To me, the turning point goes back to those missed free throws. The game is tied at 53 and Shavar, shooting 85% on the year, misses a pair. Georgetown comes back down, and I think Pickett hits a, a little baseline jumper that was a kind of a tough shot. But yet again, we find a way to tie the game. Sandro has that, that attempted dunk that hits the rim and goes through, and they review it to see if uh, Wahad's feet were, were within the restricted area. But it counts. We're tied at 57, and then Sandro misses the free throw. Late, late in the game. Georgetown trailed in the second half by a maximum of one point and it only lasted for a total of 18 seconds. They never had to play from behind with the pressure on them late in that game. And those missed free throws, in my opinion, gave them the opportunity to stay tied and take some of that pressure off of them. You know, Mikey, before I get into blue-tinted glasses, only you, only you could tell me that Sandro can go for an 8, 10, and 5 and tell me that that line looked good. Only you. The same guy who bashes to this day Isaiah Whitehead for going 10-4-8 in that game against Gonzaga in the tournament. Only you, Mike. I can't believe... I, I don't even want to hear from you. I got point. nothing else to put into the, to the, the box score. The box score was weak. They, they scored. Come on, Tom. They scored 58 again. You want to talk about box score, Mike? Jared Roden put up a box score. And, you know, I think we did him a disservice when we were talking about the St. John's game. Before the game, we were talking, and I said, you know, I want Jared Roden to get back to that grinder mode that he was in the previous two years. It always looked like Jared Roden had a hand on the ball. He was always around the ball somehow, just tapping it or grabbing a board. Those 16 boards in the Johnny's game were big. And this game, we needed something a little different, and he brought it. He was shooting from three. He was shooting from mid-range. He was taking a ball to the basket. He had the look as if to say, this is going to be my team next year, and I'm taking it over right now because no one else is stepping up. I got nothing else to add to that. That's exactly what it was. He had the killer instinct. You wanted that nasty Jared Roden that you had last year, that junkyard dog, to mix into the other aspects of his ability to hit the pull-up jumper, the ability to shoot the three. Hey, I didn't think he could ISO as well as he ISOed in this game. And you're right. He did all those things. So great positive energy to kind of lead into next year to say, all right, Roden's going to be our guy. And maybe there were some questions to be like, can he be the alpha in a Willard system? Some are still going to say that that's debatable, but this effort tonight made you have some positive reinforcements around that idea. So yeah, look, Jared finishes on the all Big East tournament team. Well-deserved. His, his numbers over those two games clearly earned him that right. He was the 
main bright spot for Seton Hall in this tournament, without a doubt. But Ike, once again, you know, I mean, we talk about bright spots, maybe not to the same extent, but Ike had another good game. You know, he wasn't as dominant as the Seton John's game earlier, but he was clearly a difference maker when he was on the floor and not in foul trouble. When he picked up that second foul early on in the game and he came out, Georgetown went on a bit of a run. It was obvious. They didn't play with the same defensive cohesiveness. That he makes a difference. He really does. When you have that guy behind you that can erase a mistake, you can be more aggressive on the perimeter. When he left the game, not the same defensive team on the floor. And, you know, we didn't celebrate Ike enough this week either. You know, he won the Big East Scholar Athlete of the Year. He led the Big East in blocks with 2.7, almost twice the next guy down the line. When Ike's in the game, he's the difference maker on that side. And I'm glad to hear he's going to come back for another year. He's going to graduate this year with his degree. Get your master's, come back, play a little better, continue that improvement, and keep it going. I got one more follow-up for you, Tommy, on this this Ike success. Everyone talks about player development in the offseason. Didn't you notice that the more PT that Ike got throughout the year, the better his footwork was on hedging against the pick and roll, how he was able to kind of close out on shooters. He was a mess early in the season. But towards the back end, he was staying on his feet when it made sense to stay on his feet. He knew when to change a shot. He was hedging out strong on the three-point line on that pick and roll. He was recovering back to the basket to block smaller guards that were trying to you know, take him to the rim. I thought he developed right in front of our eyes. You know, we do a lot to kind of poke holes in that narrative of player development and how Seton Hall does a really good job of doing it. You know, kudos to Brandt again. You know, this is the second time they've taken a a big man who's had obvious deficiencies and made them into a productive member of the team. Hopefully it continues and we can get to that next level, but kudos to that. But Mike, I'll tell you one last thing before we move on and start complaining. We're going to complain about a lot. We're going to complain about turnovers. We're going to complain about, you know, the offense just not being right. With all that said, Mike, going down to the final minute, we were still in the position to win this game. Why am I saying that? We took punches in this game. This team could have folded like a nice pair of khakis in that first half. And when we went into the half with only being two points down, you know, I said, You know, with all things considered, we're not in a bad spot here. And the guys continue to take those punches where we've seen a whole month worth of games where they didn't react well to adversity. Man, I'm going to lead right into sour grapes and grab my response to that. They scored 58. (laughs) They scored 58. And still had a chance to win, Mike. That's because Georgetown wasn't putting the ball in the basket. They didn't take punches. Georgetown didn't score. If Georgetown would have made a couple shots, we said this about all the teams that kind of we we played that horrible stretch of six games. If DePaul or Marquette had made a couple shots, we hung in there. We took punches. Mike, if anybody, Wahab, ah, stop it. Wahab and uh, Jamarco Pickett in the first half looked like they were going for career nights, and by the second half they disappeared. Oh, okay, look, I I, I was ex- it was exciting basketball. We, we were in the game. There was a chance to pull off the victory. And then you're dreaming about what it might be to get one more shot at a Creighton or a UConn and potentially punch your ticket to the dance. Yeah, it was fun basketball. I, well, I'll put that in the blue tinted glasses. I enjoyed the, the game. I wasn't, I wasn't screaming at the TV because of all the mistakes they made. But there were mistakes that were made, Tom. And, and we, got, we got to talk about it, right? We, we got to balance what we do here. And, and I'm, I'm going to now pick on Shavar Reynolds because, yes, yeah, Shavar had a rough game in the St. John's game, and Willard pulls him and says, you know what, we got to balance this. But Shavar had another rough game against the Hoyas, and Willard did not pull him. Willard played him the entire second half and did not bring Jahari Long back in. And Shavar, yet again, five turnovers, many of them just kind of bad basketball IQ type plays, out of sorts, not under control. He misses the two key free throws that I mentioned uh, earlier in the turning point section. You know, he made a bad decision, in my opinion, trying to go to the rim down three late, you know, challenging the bigs, and he got his lunch handed to him. And then on the next trip down, when they need a stop to get the ball back one more time, he fouls Harris on a three-point attempt with two seconds to go on the shot clock. Just a cardinal sin in terms of a basketball play that you can't make at that moment. I'm not placing all the blame at the feet of Shavar, but he had a really 
rough game when you needed somebody to steady the ship. They didn't need to be Superman, just play a solid point guard. And he arguably could have had his worst game of the year. Yeah, the decision-making down the stretch was just just poor. He just had a rough game. And let me just say, it was rougher than those stats. I mean, in the first 10 minutes of play, Mike, he had four turnovers already. In the first 10 minutes, he seemed to settle down from the turnover standpoint the rest of the game. But... Maybe he got tired toward the end, man. You know, you got to get some, you got to get some breathers. Put in Jahari for a couple minutes. But you know who really had a bad game, Mike? Your boy that you said had a good stat line. Sandro picked the worst game of the year to have his worst game. He went three for 16. And, you know, most of these shots, they were giving Jamarco Pickett a whole bunch of credit for playing defense. I'm just sitting there watching and thinking to myself, why is he posting up so far outside, Mike? He's still sticking his butt out when he's out by the three-point on the wing. I mean, this is just way too far out there. He's too predictable. That's, this is where I kind of I had a problem with, you know, putting him in the Biggies player of the year category. Definitely all, definitely first team. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish. He shouldn't have been all first team Big East. But he wasn't dominant, right? So here's a guy who, you're right, he's got to take a guy like Pickett down deep in the post, force them to double team him and then make things happen for the rest of his teammates or score the basketball. And he couldn't impose his will. He couldn't get his shot off that he wanted to get. I mean, we've, we said it at nauseum over the last few weeks. Didn't you know what was coming every time that he got the ball in terms of going to his left? How many times have you seen the biggest player of the year get stripped or rejected at the rim multiple times per game? Like he did. If you want to defend Sandro, I would make the argument that he was aggressive to the basket and he did not get a fair whistle. How about that? No, he was not getting whistle. Player of the year needs to get more whistles than he did. And I'm going to show you how fair I am, Mike. My man, Miles Kale, kind of disappeared. He played 23 minutes. He was only one for six for three points. He had two rebounds, two turnovers. He needed to be more aggressive here. You know, I continuously kind of defend him by saying... They need to work him into something to get his shots. But he needed to take more than six shots in this one. He needed Miles to have a breakout season, period. And we got what we got from Miles. And look, people love Miles. He's, you know, he's, he's a good representation of the program on and off the court. He's a guy that you want to you, you wanna like. And when he puts in 30-plus for his career high against Georgetown, you're like, that's the guy that we know is in there. And then he has a game like tonight. And that's just Miles. You, you can't beg on Miles and say he's a bad player. He's a good ball player, but they needed him to be a consistent second or third option throughout the year. See, I'm going to take umbrage with what you said. They needed him to break out. No, they didn't need him to break out. They needed him to be steady. If you okay. looked at the numbers, junior year was a, a, an abomination. I don't know what happens there. I bet in a couple years he comes on this show, tells us he had a bad ankle in his junior year or something that they didn't want to talk about back then. But I mean... His number, his scoring numbers were down his junior year by almost four points from his sophomore year. And now he doubled them. He doubled his scoring average from his junior year to his senior year. You can make all the faces you want right now, Mike. It, it, but yes, he needed to be more steady. And that's what we didn't get from him. And the problem always comes down to, in my opinion, is that we don't have an offensive philosophy where we can work in easy shots for these guys. We're always giving these guys the ball saying, go create something. And that's what we end up getting in trouble with Molson. That's where we end up getting in trouble with Kale. These guys need a structured offense to score. So we got what we got. But actually, I think that's where the narrative with Miles Kale is incorrect. People are comparing his junior season to what he did this season, when the reality is last year, he was like option number four or five. Other guys stepped up. Miles is taking a ton of shots. Q is playing at an all Big East level. Roe breaks out. Sandro is on the floor. You didn't need that from Miles last year. He could be your, you know, lockdown defender, shoot the occasional three. This is more of a comparison to his sophomore season when he really was the second, third leading scoring option on that roster when he, him and Sandro were developing as young players. And you got the same type of Miles Kale that you got that year. When Miles was consistent or had a good game, the team played well. And when Miles struggled, the team struggled because they just didn't have enough firepower. So you got that in this game. Miles had a rough one and the team had a rough one putting the ball in the basket. Plain and simple. This is not to just take shots at Miles. 
just we needed to have a repeat of the game against St. John's where all three guys were firing on all cylinders and you needed that for three nights in a row. It didn't happen in game number two. They didn't move on. That's a more that that see now that's a fair comment. But moving on. Mikey, what happened to the trust in your bench all of a sudden? It's not like we were playing poorly either. We had two guys that played quality minutes in the first half that never sniffed the floor in the second half. Tyrese Samuel played 10 minutes, had six first half points, giving you scoring off the bench, which we rarely see. Didn't see the floor in the second half. Jahari Long, six minutes, held down the fort again. Didn't sniff the court in the second half. What's going on? Tyrese who? Tyrese who? Oh, Mikey, you are not being fair. I mean, he's been in the, I don't, was he been in the doghouse? Willard is not giving him the same kind of run. He hasn't been giving you production in the second half of the season. And you're right. When they needed a shot in the arm, there he is giving you six points off the bench in the first half. He's active. You know, sometimes you just have to kind of roll with it with a guy like Tyrese, you know, he has a couple bad shots, then he gets in his own head or Willard doesn't give him the run. He gives him 10 minutes in the first half. He produces for you. And you don't go back to him. You're offensively challenged in this game and you don't go back to him. I forget about what's happened for like the previous four or five games in that moment. He's contributing. I'm at a loss, Tom Jahari plays such a steady game in against St. John's. I'm not asking for Jahari to get in there and score me 10 points, but twice he he made moves where he got to the basket or he, he went to his left and got a little eight foot jump shot. Yeah. I understand he didn't make both of those shots, but they were under control. He played another solid six minutes. Shavar's having a rough night and you can't give Shavar any blow in the second half and let Jahari come in and steady the ship like he has done now for a game and a half. I'm at a loss. I really am. You know what put me at a loss, Mike? It looked like this was the first time that these guys had played together. It almost looked like this was like everybody was coming back from summer break and they're just getting the ball out there in a wreck and they're playing a little bit. Like they had at least four balls that they threw into the crowd as players cut away, I, it, it was almost like they didn't know what to expect from each other out there. I think it goes back to the whole lack of an offensive scheme, and this showed really badly this game. That's probably the biggest frustration, as you've seen other teams as the year has progressed, where guys are getting better, they're finding their their cohesiveness as a team. You know, let's let's take Butler for example. That backcourt of Tate and Harris. They're looking solid. Obviously, it's not the same guys at the beginning of the season because that's what happens. Freshmen, you know, they, they become sophomores by the end of the year, right? You see what happened across the way with Georgetown, with Harris, and how he had the confidence now to run the point. Teams just got better as the year went along. Those kind of mistakes that they were making looked like game one type mistakes, did it not? Oh, it, it looked bad. I was surprised that Coach Willard wasn't going to call a timeout at some point and get them over there, give them some deep thoughts. And that, speaking of deep that thoughts, that Mikey. That is horrible. That is horrible. Sometimes you got to roll with it, Mike. Sometimes you get good shots and sometimes you get turnovers. Maybe this is a turnover on us. But with that being said, we go to our favorite segment. And now, Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard. Okay, Mike. So before we get into dissecting some quotes from Coach I want to give big ups to Grant Billmeyer. Two in one show, Mike. He ended up doing the post game with Gary Cohen and Dave Popkin after both Big East tournament games. And he was really good. He had good answers. He was concise. He sounded like a trained head coach, Mike. But this this is not deep thoughts with Grant Billmeyer. This is deep thoughts with <laughs> Kevin Willard. Stay, stick to the narrative, Tommy. What, what did Kevin give me one last time for the season? Okay, so... He was asked about coaching this season, and he said the following. No, I'm, re- I'm really proud of this basketball team. Um, you know, I think I made some decisions early on when we came out of COVID lockdown that hurt us and probably hurt our chances uh, for the NCAA tournament because it, look, it's looked upon like we didn't, we, couldn't, we didn't beat anybody when, you know, I tried to give what these guys wanted to do. They wanted to play games, you know, coming out. I've said it before, coming out of the summer and – the season ending last year, um, these guys really just wanted to play games when we came out of lockdown and we just weren't ready to play. Um, and that really kind of set us back. You know, Bryce gets hurt in the first six minutes of the, the Louisville game and then we're on the road and we, you know, we played 
And we've played more road games than anybody else. I just think it just probably wasn't the best decision. But when I look back at it, this was a great group to coach. They played hard. Um, they practiced hard. They had a great attitude. Um, we got close to coming after, you know, after losing three great seniors last year to come back and, and replace those guys and, and get close to making the NCAA tournament. Um, I'm proud of this team. Wow. So, so we, we did a whole episode last week where it was like the microcosm of the season relative to the, the those last couple of games. And is, isn't this quote just a microcosm of the Kevin Willard quotes throughout the year? I mean, they're late. They're filled, filled with just excuses where you're like, really, we're going to say that again. I'm sorry. Yes, COVID was rough for this team because they were one of the first teams in the country to really have to pause. But that narrative is over. Other teams have had to pause throughout the year. Georgetown, of all teams, had the, the biggest adversity lined up for them. Their, their record was in the toilet. They had to pause, and they come out and go 10-4 and four down the stretch. You think that Seton Hall was the only team that wanted to get back out there and play games after COVID ended the season abruptly last year? Come on. It, yes, he probably made a misstep in scheduling that Oregon game to create four games in a seven-day span. This is a coach who complains about playing three games in a week because he's overlapping the Sunday game from a two-week schedule into the following two-week schedule and complaining about six games, or excuse me, three games in seven days. He scheduled four games in seven, and he made it, like you said, a travel-around-the-country marathon with all different sites. Okay, so shame on him for that. But the reality is they didn't beat anybody, period. Their resume was what their resume was. Their best win was at UConn with an undermanned team without book night. They had a win at Xavier, which the team looked phenomenal. But then we find out that kind of Xavier is who we thought they were as they flamed out down the stretch. Tom, where's the resume or the substance on this resume? It doesn't exist. It has nothing to do with the fact that they played these games early in the season and it was COVID again. I'm sorry. See, my, my problem, I've got, there's a whole lot to unpack in this quote, but here's my problem with it. You did not make the NCAA tournament because of your out-of-conference scheduling. On February 17th, Coming off the DePaul win, Seton Hall had 10 conference win. And all those genius pundits were saying, we just needed 12 wins and we were a lock. And what happens? You go 0-4. You lose to Georgetown, Butler, UConn, and St. John's. That's what cost this team an NCAA bid, not to mention flameouts earlier in the season. But what really got me is... He's actually blaming his players for this, Mike, if you really look into this quote. That's He's true. saying the players wanted to play, so I gave it to him and da da, da. He, uh, It's just, you know, it's typical Willard. This is what drives me crazy about Coach. He's built up a nice program. He got us out of a really bad place with Gonzo. We have been in contention for NCAA tournaments for now six years. And he gives us this when he has some adversity. It's just bad, Mike. It's just like, uh, it's just bad. Why can't you just, we always kind of say, what would I have said in this spot? Just say, hey, look, you know, this team got dealt a tough hand. We were counting on Bryce to be a bigger factor, you know, than what he was. And his injury really set us back. Hey, the COVID situation you know, every team's had to handle it, but there were times that it really kind of hurt us and we had a difficult time regrouping. I'm proud that this team took the court, played the games, gave the fan base something to cheer about. Yes, we had some ups and downs, but you know what? We were in it till the very end. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a little disappointing that we came up just short. And I wished that these kids could have had their moment on the big stage. Say something like that. Come on. We did have a positive week in the big picture, Mike. So let's bring some more positivity. Give me something that made you say, whoa, did you see that? I like Sandro's angry dunk versus St. John's. I'm going to give you a couple here and then I'll let you pick, but I, I got a whole Sandro kind of like, you know. Of uh, course you have a whole Sandro. I got a little repertoire. I got a little repertoire for Sandro here. Sandro's got the angry dunk versus St. John's. I thought that kind of brought the energy. The team rallied around that play. I really loved his angry dunk miss versus Georgetown. Uh, Mikey, you're just pathetic. 
whatever you don't like that play fine i liked it i wish it would have gone down that might have changed some of the narrative uh and then i loved his end one dunk to tie the game at 57 uh yeah i wish he would have made the free throw uh, but i'm gonna give you a sleeper pick jahari is long bucket versus st john's come on tommy the end one for jahari i get i give you four you got three for sandro you got a jahari and one I'll, I'll let you have fun with it. I would have jumped out of my seat had he finished the reverse that he did later on in a game. But, Mike, you, this is an easy pick. It's the angry dunk because, you know, the entirety of Twitterverse just exploded for the Pirates when that dunk went down. You don't get a woe did you see that on a miss. You don't get a woe did you see that when you missed a free throw on an and one. And, you know, while Jahari's move was nice... It's early in the game, and it wasn't as special as Sandro's big-time dunk. No, big man got up. Big man came off the wing, and he threw that thing down. Jahari's is not on the list because it was an awesome play. It was a, whoa, did you see that? Jahari scored. You're backhanded compliments. It's like this kid owes you money or something. No, you got to flop, Mike. And speaking of Mike flops, what did you hear this week that made you just shake your head? I hate this because I was like, I've been pumping up Jim Jackson all season and, you, and you've been bashing on Jimmy. And I'm, I'm like, damn it. Jimmy had a bad game. You know, they, they don't get Ike's fourth foul correct when he goes to the bench in the St. John's game. And when he comes back later on and he fouls out, everyone's scratching his head. Oh, that's just a foul. You, you got to know what's going on in the game and in, in, in telling the narrative to the audience. And speaking of not being able to tell the proper narrative to the audience, Seton Hall misses their first game-winning shot attempt, you know, at the end of the St. John's game in regulation, and the ball goes out of bounds with like four seconds to play. And as they're kind of setting up the ball to come back in bounds, Jim Jackson goes, oh, now you're going to have to foul. What? It's a tie game. It's a tie game. And, and, and then all of a sudden the play-by-play guy takes over, Sandro misses the shot, and they go to overtime. But no, I mean, really, Jim? It's a tie ball game. And you just assume that because they missed a shot and they got the offensive rebound in terms of the ball going off of St. John's that now St. John's has to foul because they were expecting to get the ball back. It's a tie game. You got to foul now. Oh man, that was bad. And people probably missed it in the heat of the moment because you were so hyped up about, you know, Seton all trying to win the game at that, at that spot. But that, that's a bad miss by Jimmy. We must be getting tired because I don't know how we didn't complain about the last play of that game in the St. John's way. That was 30 seconds of really bad basketball. But, Mike, the season has now come to a completion, or has it? Because there's still things that are out there. And as this entire season has been driven by, the pandemic pandemonium is driving decisions going forward. The question came up. The NCAA tournament is probably out of reach here. We're definitely not getting an at-large. But there's always a chance of getting an NIT bid. So what do you think? What happens here? Do you care what I think? Or do you want to care what Coach thinks? Do you want one more Kevin Willard quote to kind of wrap up the show here? Sure, why not? Kevin Willard on accepting an NIT bid. Uh, I haven't really put a whole lot of thought into it, Zach. At this moment, um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure um, that's going to be the best thing for this team. You know, I don't think – I wouldn't play Sanjo in the NIT. Um, you know, I have some seniors that, you know, it just – I'm not sure going into a hotel in Texas right now uh, is the best thing for my seniors. But I'm going to have a conversation with them later. Um, but as of right now, I'm, I'm leaning toward not doing it just for the fact of everything that we've been through all year long. I'm just not sure that's something that is best for us right now. Tom, you want, you want to take it first? Well, you know, I mean, he actually makes good points here. I mean, there's a whole lot to unpack here. We talked about it last week. Is there a whole lot of purpose for a senior-laden team to take an NIT bid to find out who's the number 69 team in the country at this point? He also brings up the fact of going to the, Texas, which has opened its doors, opened up all the businesses, Drop the mask mandate. You know, there's a lot to consider here. But the kids wanted to play at the beginning of the season. They needed to take the court. They wanted to take the court. So now all of a sudden, if the kids want to play, now, no, it's not in their best interest as the coach. I'm going to scrap that now. So you never want to get another NIT invitation ever again. 
accept the bid and send nothing but underclassmen out there to play that game and see how it goes. Well, that's the other thing. So, I mean, now we're protecting Sandro from injury because he might get drafted. So if the team decides to go, Sandro doesn't get to play? He, coach has already made that decision? If he goes, hey, my, my teammates, the guys that have been out there fighting thick and thin for the last four years want to take the court and try to win four more games and get an IT title. Sandro doesn't get to make that choice now? Coach has already made that I, choice? I'm for sure him? Sandro's made that choice already. I bet he said, I'm not playing NIT, coach. But this happened like right after the game. I, I guarantee you that conversation has not happened yet. Come on. And, and I'm sorry. I mean, they're not going to the NIT and all of a sudden Trey Jackson, who has played two minutes of garbage time, is now going to be in the starting five. And hang on. And everyone goes, but that's going to be great for his development. So, so they get their butts kicked for one game and then they're out and then they're back on a flight. And maybe maybe somebody does get the COVID. Now they have to quarantine in Texas for two weeks? That's fantastic, by the way. I, I, I don't like this idea, but I, once again, I don't like the narrative. Either you're all in or you're all out. And at this point, it might be okay to be all out due to the mental wear and tear that this team had to go through because of the pandemic. You're right. The, the prize is not that much of an ultimate prize. It's not a young, young and up-and-coming team that you want to give them another little building block for next year. Maybe it's time to let the kids go back to their friends and family and just and just put a cap on it. So, I, so I'm okay with that. Just say that. You know, Mike, but are we done? Is it all over? I started the podcast today with a quote from a movie, and I'm going to add another quote from a movie here. To paraphrase that classic movie, Dumb and Dumber, so you're saying there's still a chance. Oh, geez, you, you do sound like Dumb and Dumber if right now. We have, if there's teams that need to drop from the tournament due to COVID, Seton I, Hall might sneak in. I Put a little asterisk by the back. I should have never started this segment at the beginning of the year. I've got you now buying into pandemic pandemonium, and it's asinine at this point. It just really is. They're right now probably going to be like number five in the first four out category. They're not even in the first four out category anymore. But yes, if a team between now and when they have to get to Indianapolis don't meet the requirements for the seven negative tests that you have to have, a team could get disqualified. Or, or do they? Now I'm confused. And no one's giving any clarification. Now, you know, Gavitt comes out and says, oh, as long as you got five guys that can play, you could take the floor. So is that while you're in Indianapolis and you're in the field and you're playing games and somebody tests positive, if you can get five guys that are still negative, now you can keep playing? Or if you're Virginia or Kansas and you had to bow out of your conference tournament on Friday, how are you getting seven clean tests for everybody in the program leading up to Tuesday? I can check my calendar and count. I don't see seven days in between Friday and Tuesday. So what's, what's the rule? Is it five players now? Is it the whole program? I'm really confused. But you're telling me even in that scenario – Five teams, potentially, maybe more because of bid stealers. You had Oregon State and Georgetown steal bids. So now we're probably like number seven on that list. You want me to hold out hope that seven teams get disqualified for coronavirus? And they're not going to find some other loophole to get these. Yes, they're going to find a way to make sure Seton Hall gets in before Kansas. Tommy, what are you smoking over there, man? You know, in all reality, it's probably all over here, Mike. I'm just, just. You got to make me the bad guy. You got to make me sound like the bad guy. I'm going with the ridiculousness that's been there. But in all reality, Mike, if a program actually has five healthy players and they send them to the tournament, that's a bad look. That is, you were just saying you have you have no care about your team. You just want that extra year on that banner that shows you your appearances in the tournament. That's ridiculous. You you're you're not caring about the health of your team at that point. Just Five players showing up for a game. Can, can, can I re, can I really piss you off? Can I bring up my brother to end this podcast? No, no, no. We're moving on. No brother. No, I'm doing no. it. I'm doing it. I, no. I get I, I get a text and he goes, "Championship week going great for the NCAA." Oh, uh, he's like people bowing out left and right. He's like Duke, Virginia. I go Duke was done, man. I go Duke was done before they even. Made that announcement. Tell your brother to go watch the Knicks and be excited that they're 500 again, okay, Mike? In all seriousness, season's probably over. Another one in the books. We'll be having our season recap coming up shortly. But what am I going to do with myself, Mike? There's no more games to watch. What am I going to do? 
going to watch the tournament. You're still going to enjoy the tournament. We did not have the NCAA madness for a whole season last year. That was tough. Yeah, it's going to be a little bittersweet that we're not in it, but you're still going to watch the tournament as a college basketball fan, no? Give me a dark horse, Mike. Who do you say wins? Oh, I'm rooting for Patrick still, aren't you? Oh, no, I can't. I, I don't root for Big East. I'm sorry. I can't root for Big East teams. No, can't do it. How can you not get behind that story? I, I give you the narrative. It. I give you the narrative at the top of the show. Big John, the ghost of Big John, following that team through the tournament. No, Come can't, on. Can't do, can't do it. I'm going to go with my in-laws, and I'm going to go follow Ohio State now. Uh, to me, it, it, I'd love to just see a Gonzaga Baylor championship game. I, it lined, it's been lining up that way the whole season. I think they're clearly the two best teams in the country. I understand that the tournament never plays out that way, but it would be cool to watch those two teams meet for the championship and watch the Big Ten go down in flames at the same time. Oh, man, that's just bad. Well, Mikey, I don't like I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself, but we've got lots more to talk about next week. So until then, Mike, go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle, at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates.